you cannot miss the giant human-shaped balloon on the season three premiere of The Leftovers. We're not just doubling down on Busey. We're, go- we're going by a factor of 10. For the true fans who stu- have stuck with us since the pilot, I feel they deserve nothing less than a massive floating Busey. As in Gary Busey. Showrunner Damon Lindelof knows what fans like. He co-created and ran ABC's mega-hit Lost, and then came HBO's The Leftovers, which explores how humanity would cope in the face of a global catastrophe, the unexplained disappearance of 140 million people. So many of our loved ones were lost three years ago. It's hard to know how to talk about them without feeling, well, we really don't know how to feel. Because we still wonder where they went and why. This is Showrunners. I'm Kim Renfro, a culture reporter at Insider. A showrunner does a lot of things, from directing to writing to overseeing the daily production of the show. The showrunner ultimately controls every facet of a TV show, which is why we created Showrunners, the podcast that talks to the people making the shows that we love. On this premiere episode, Damon Lindelof tells us about why he's not worried about what happens when you die and why having a diverse writing room leads to great shows. But before we get into all that, Damon, welcome to the show, and I'd like to ask you what you're watching on TV right now. Oh man, there's so much out there. I mean, I'm watching The Americans, I, I, I don't miss that the night that it's on. I'm watching Legion, uh, Noah Hawley's new mm-hmm. show, and looking forward to uh, Fargo uh, starting up imminently again. Love Mr. Robot, uh, Halt and Catch Fire, Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. of course. I love The Young <laughs> Pope, uh, Stranger Things you know, Master of None, The Good Place. I, I watch a lot of television. It's my job too, and I, and, uh, I mean, not really. Like, I, I do think that I, I, I do need to be aware of what other kind of things are happening in the medium because they do demonstrate some grounds for inspiration. You know, if you look at like the Beach Boys and the Beatles, for example, when Pet Sounds and Sgt. Pepper were happening, they were listening to each other's music and mm-hmm. this idea of like, oh, you can do that? You can do that too? In addition to just really enjoying uh, watching other people's television shows, I do think that I, I learned from it. Can you give me an example of something that you feel like you've learned from another series recently? In these latest seasons, both the first season of Westworld and the second season of Mr. Robot, something happened in the writing of the television show and the episodes themselves but then the discourse with the fan base and the audience and the internet at large in terms of the audience is now so sophisticated that it only takes mm-hmm. you know one person to, to catch one small hint of something and then they post that on Reddit and then the next thing you know, the mainstream media is basically picking it up and it's everywhere. And then that may, may be something that the, the storytellers don't want to reveal until five or six episodes down the line. I think in the case of both those shows, in fact, it turned out that uh, the twist was something that they kind of wanted us to guess, but the fact that we were so focused on the twist actually obfuscated some other things that they wanted to keep hidden. I sort of learned, A, I need to be constantly thinking about the one person on Reddit who's gonna basically crack it. So you can't really tell stories that way that have twists anymore in the conventional thinking where the audience's default position is, oh, that guy's a ghost. That person's not really there. That's that's how our brains are, have basically been rewired as a result of all these mm-hmm. imaginary friend 
Uh, we did it on leftovers in the second in the second season. Mr. Robot obviously did it. Legion is playing around with that idea. You know, in the case of Legion, it it put it tacks a new idea on top of it. And so I do think this idea of of evolution and sort of being one step ahead of the audience is is something that it was very necessary for me to learn. But now that I feel like I've learned it. <clears throat> The audience has once again surpassed me. So you, you know, you have these people who pick apart every scene, and it is interesting that the leftovers is framed around the idea that you aren't going to be able to figure everything out, and yet we are suddenly in this culture of TV watching where that's usually not the case. Ha- having spent six years of my life on Lost, and that show mm-hmm. invited. And, and in fact insisted upon that level of engagement with the promise that every single mystery introduced on the show would eventually be answered. And and when I read Tom Parada's uh, book uh, upon which the series The Leftovers is based, he was very explicit in his novel that the most compelling mystery of the show, which is where did these 140 million people disappear to and why them? Mm-hmm. And what is it all? What's the purpose of it? It's is never going to be answered. And I just found that incredibly brave. And um, and I was like, you can do that. Isn't that just a huge f you to the audience? But I became so involved in his book, and it became very clear that the story that he was telling was about living in a world that didn't have resolution. And the fact of the matter is, is yes, there there frustration and dissatisfaction is part and parcel to you know, any mystery road that we go down. That said, like some of the things that I've grown, you know, most attached to, like say, uh, making a murderer or serial. What's so compelling about them is I will never know. I just won't ever know if Stephen Avery did it. I won't ever know if Adnan did it. The, the fundamental idea of not knowing is just so interesting to me. That's the world that I live in. I don't know what happens when you die. I'm okay with that. How would you write your own job description for someone who has never heard of a showrunner? My job, more than anything else, is to kind of be the buck stops here clearinghouse for for most of the creative decisions on the show, even when that decision is, I trust you, do whatever you want, figure it out. So, But I get to, I get to delegate... Uh, the individuals that I'm saying it to. In the case of The Leftovers, we have an incredibly empowered writer's room that functions more like a jury than it than it does a benevolent dictatorship, which is the way that other writer's rooms kind of run. I, I will pitch in the writer's room and the writers will, will tell me I'm an idiot. And we tend to, to re- the ideas that we get excited about are ones that we reach full consensus on. Any one person in the room can completely and totally filibuster and hang us up, and that's the person that we have to convince that the idea is good. And then the majority of the hiring decisions, the other part of showrunning that I think most showrunners would agree is the writing. There needs to kind of be a consistency of voice so that when you watch a television show, it's like, oh, that feels like an episode of The Americans. It may not have been written by the showrunners, but the showrunners are basically in charge of saying like, this idea feels like it's inside the bandwidth of this show. And this character's voice, literally the dialogue they're writing, that sounds like something that they would say. And the showrunner is kind of quality control. That said, Mm -hmm. I think the more active creative voices on The Leftovers, the better. And there are some characters I understand very well and others less so. And 
I rely upon others, including the actors, to kind of tell me uh, like when their spidey sense is tingling as well. What are some of the characters that you feel you understand the best? I feel like I understand uh, Kevin really well. He's roughly the same age that I am, maybe a year or two younger than I was when I started writing the show. And I think that although I look nothing like uh, Justin Thoreau, no matter how many sit-ups I do, I just relate to a guy who I really empathize with him because I think he's trying so hard. Um, But at the same time, there's just sort of an existential vacuum in him and he doesn't quite know how to fill it. Like, I've definitely felt that way at times in my life, particularly when I first achieved some level of success and when Lost happened, it's so far beyond surpassed any uh, dream or ambition or goal that I had that, like, there was a huge now what. Like, I'm supposed to feel great about this and all I feel is sort of terror and I've never given birth, but it felt like some kind of massive uh, psychological, emotional postpartum. And I was 30 years old. And so... I, I, I think this, what am I supposed to, you know, do with my life? He doesn't, he's a character who behaves with a tremendous amount of confidence uh, in his external life, but in his internal life seems to be riddled with doubt about himself and, uh, and the others around him. And it's also challenging for him to uh, form relationships, even with the people that he loves. And I think that that's not unique to me, but it's something that I completely and totally understand. I, I'm happily married. Uh, I have a great uh, 10-year-old son, but very often I just feel like, what am I doing? Am I screwing this up? Do I really know these people? I feel so close to these people, and yet I, I don't know them at all. I'm terrified about them leaving me. Uh, all these uh, sort of internal anxieties that, I don't, again, I don't think are unique to me nor Kevin Garvey, but it is kind of what I relate to. And then Matt Jameson is probably the other character that I feel really connected to. He has every reason to kind of abandon his faith, but he just keeps doubling down. I just kind of feel like, oh, I just made a show, a big mystery show that many felt uh, ended unsatisfyingly. You know what I'm going to do next? A mystery show. <laughs> like, I do feel like, at least I'm ascribing this to Matt Jameson, there's a certain admirable quality in someone who continues to do something that they know is going to create a tremendous amount of unpleasant uh, feelings focused at them, and they do it anyway because that's just what they believe. Justin Thoreau obviously just kind of, like, smacks you in the face every time. Like, how did he learn to cry (laughs) like that? (laughs) What I can tell you is he's not a method actor, so he'll do, like, those amazing scenes and then he'll come over to, to Video Village where the monitors are and just kind of sit next to you and be like, hey, you know, can I have one of those carrot sticks? And you're just like, what? He's able to kind of turn it on and off. But um, mm-hmm. he does really process the material uh, like an almost academic scholarly approach. I've seen his scripts and they're totally marked up. Mm-hmm. He has a strong sense of what he wants to do. You know, Justin has been very game to do all the crazy stuff that we've asked him to do. The only time that he's ever blanked is I emailed him and said, hey, can you sing? And then he 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 emailed me back just one word. It just said, why? (laughs) And I was like, oh, this will be great. Like, this is something that he doesn't want to do, which is great because the character doesn't want to do it when he's forced to sing. 
And if if Justin was basically like, "Can I sing? Oh my God, I'm amazing!" Then I don't. I I think we probably would not have ended up doing what we did. And that was such a unexpected and powerful moment. Can you tell me about? that in the writer's room because I'm sure that that was something that kind of sounded crazy and then it it worked so well. (laughs) Uh, Unlike many things in the writer's room, I remember that one very specifically, which is, so we had done an episode called International Assassin in which the character of Kevin spends the entire episode in this, I'm not going to call it a dream realm or an afterlife. You decide what you want to call it, but it's not our world. And the way that he ends up getting out of this world and returning back to the world of the living is that he has to push this little girl into a well, uh, supposedly to her death. And then uh, she doesn't die when she lands in there. She basically becomes her adult self. And then he has to kind of jump down into the well and drown her. That's hard. And so mm-hmm. we had this idea that in the finale, Kevin would die again because no one would be expecting us to do it again so soon after bringing him back mm-hmm. to life. And also we love the idea that he would be very frustrated by having to kind of go back to the beginning of this particular video game. Like, oh my God, I'm starting over. But it wasn't going to be an entire episode. Now it was just going to be about a five minute long sequence because there were so many other things we needed to do in the finale. And so the challenge in the writer's room was he ran this entire gauntlet. He had to push a little girl into a well in order to get out. Like, how's he going to come back to life this time? How's he going to get out? It's got to be even harder than murdering a little girl. And Parada just says without any thought, he, he has to sing karaoke. And everybody just burst into laughter because we kind of thought he was kidding. But he was dead serious. And he was like, for Kevin Garvey... Having to sing karaoke is just as hard as pushing a little girl into a well. Something that you said that struck me was that some of the writers have called or like said that your ideas were idiotic. Oh, I for think sure. It's the word you, you've used. First, I'm curious as to how what you look for when you're hiring writers that would give them that quality of like being confident enough to say that to you. But I'm also curious if you can remember an idea that you've had that was... Uh, vetoed by the rest of the writing team. I I mean, there have been so many ideas that I've had that have been vetoed by the rest of the writing team that it just happens 50 times a day. I'll just be like two sentences into a pitch and they'll visibly start shaking their heads. Uh, What I look look for, A, I'm really interested in where people came from. How is your life story different than mine? Although I'd be much more comfortable sitting with seven other white Jews from New Jersey who love Star Wars we're all looking at life through the same basic lens. The first thing that I tend to ask people when I'm interviewing them is, tell me your story. And the way that people answer that question is very interesting. Some people start with, I was born in Kentucky. And some people start with like, uh, this morning I was in a car accident. But more importantly, I just want a very diverse array of experience. I also like Uh, what their influences are. I like, I'm like, what are you reading right now? And I want somebody to mention a book that I've probably never heard of or haven't read. Uh, I like to get a range of uh, different ages in the writer's rooms. Obviously, we had a really good gender balance. That's, that's kind of job one is just to kind of shake it up and, and have different opinions. And then like, I want someone who has like a really specific voice and and an attitude Um, and a fundamental confidence where they're not afraid to speak their mind. If someone came in and said like, oh my God, I love Lost so much. I I love your writing. I'm such a big fan. 
I kind of almost automatically disqualified them. I wanted to be surrounded by people who see me the way that I see myself, which is incredibly fallible. That would be really challenging for me. You know, if I was a huge fan of someone to ever basically say, like, I don't I don't like your idea. As you're building not just a writer's room, but a community and a crew, you just don't want redundancies. If one person is kind of going to be the comedic voice in the room, or they actually look at the lens of even a show like The Leftovers as like, I think you're missing opportunities to find the funny here. You may want to find one other voice that feels similarly so that person is not isolated or a token of comedy. And then you've kind of got, okay, that's, that's that figured out. Now I need someone who's like really interested in, in the guilty remnant because almost everybody that I've met with after season one said the weakest part of the show was the guilty remnant. And in terms of they, it was just like baffling to them why the guilty remnant smoked cigarettes and why they didn't talk and they were immensely frustrating and why are they doing what they're doing. But here's somebody I'm interviewing and they're saying my favorite part of the show is the guilty remnant. And I'm like, okay, you're an outlier. You're in the room now. Now the Guilty Remnant has somebody to defend them. This It's all voir dire for me. And I'm trying to build a jury that's going to arrive at the verdict that is the best possible show imaginable. How do you approach making a show for a network like ABC versus doing HBO? Because I imagine that there are a lot of differences. There's a huge difference just culturally in terms between broadcast and cable a in terms of like there's just the business side of it which is particularly for hbo or or showtime it's or net even netflix which is streaming but it's the same is it's subscriber based they're looking for an entirely different product than the networks are which are if you can't get people to watch the show it can't possibly sustain itself according to their business model and so of course uh ratings matter but more importantly, the intended audience of the show matters. You know, writing a show like The Leftovers, which I would argue never really had broad appeal, comparing it to something like Game of Thrones. And HBO, that wasn't a concern for them. They just wanted the show because they thought it was good. The pace at which you need to generate the episodes, there's just a, a significant difference when you are doing 10 episodes a year than when you're doing 24 episodes a year, which is what we did for the first uh, three years of Lost. And there's really no time to think about anything. There's not a lot of time to pre-plan. You know, I do think that there's a misperception that at HBO or Netflix or uh, premium cable, showrunners can do whatever they want and in, in, in broadcast, they're micromanaged. That is not the experience that I've had and in fact, not the experience that many of my peers have. I think that, you know, good studio executives give good notes and there's great studio executives in broadcast and great studio executives in in pay cable and in fact because you're moving so much faster in broadcast there's not a lot of time to sit back and contemplate whether or not you're making a huge mistake and and there is more time in uh in pay cable and so some now it's like now we're having a meeting about it so there's there's actually more time to second guess yourself i don't feel like oh my god uh, pay cable is just so much better than broadcast. I think that they both have their advantages, and it really depends on what kind of a story you're telling. I mean, were you thinking about that sort of idea of universal appeal when you were thinking of the concept of Lost? No. I mean, I think that Lloyd Braun, who who was the president of ABC at the time, and, and Lost was really his idea in terms of he had an idea at a company retreat that Survivor was a huge hit at the time 
and this was in the age of the reality boom and he and his idea was like we should do survivor as a drama series it would be an incredible pilot for a television show to basically have a plane crash on an island and then the show would just be about the survivors surviving and so that idea was generated by the president of the network and he, he saw the possibility how that show could be marketed. They developed a version of that show with Aaron Spelling, and they didn't like the direction that it was heading, and, um, and they brought J.J. Abrams on, and J.J. was busy running Alias and running another pilot, uh, sorry, writing another pilot called The Catch, and he was like, I'll supervise someone, uh, but I don't have time to basically do this myself, and that basically set up you know the circumstances under which I was introduced to JJ and a week later after that initial meeting I had quit my day job the this other show that I was working on and we were writing partners and, and co-show running this insane pilot for which there was really only an outline so I didn't really even think about whether or not a lot of people were going to watch it or how broad-based the idea was there was a tremendous amount of confidence again by Lloyd that people would watch this thing, but I wanted it to be successful, of course, but all the ideas that JJ and I were getting excited about, that it would be incredibly ensembleized, you know, that we'd have 16 series regulars, that the show would be heavily serialized, which at the time was kind of a dirty word in network TV. It was the age of the procedural, and it was kind of, DVR was a thing, but the thinking was that for a serialized television show, if you missed an episode, then you would basically fall off the, the bandwagon and you wouldn't watch it anymore. And then thing number three was the show was weird. It was supernatural. And with the exception of The X-Files, really there weren't a lot of television shows on broadcast that played with and flirted with the supernatural to the degree that we did. So those were all reasons not to think that people were going to watch the show. The, the, the day before it aired, it aired on a Wednesday night, ABC presented us with their research polling for how they thought that the show was gonna do. And they predicted, I think, that like eight million people were gonna watch the show, which they were like, mm -hmm. you know, that's okay. There's room to grow. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not a disaster by any stretch of the imagination. We're not worried. It was like, okay. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, 20 million people watched the show that night. I don't think anybody knew that it was gonna be a commercial mm -hmm. success until it was. So I really want to talk about the cold open that you guys did for season three, because similar to what you did with season two and this cave woman sort of montage, you jump right in again in season three and we have no dialogue whatsoever. We're not really sure where we are. And I really want to know how you guys decide to go with that sort of ambiguous, disorienting opening versus, you know, throwing a title card or something in there that indicates where we are in time, where we are in the world, and kind of giving people a hint about what's going on. In the case of both The Cave Woman and the opening of season three, because it's the season opener, we looked at it kind of like an overture. We're going to basically start our story by giving you a sense of the themes that we're interested in. And our hope is that by time the entire season is over, it will have more context than in the moment that you're watching it. But certainly the main characters of the show, in this case the Garveys and the Murphys and the Jamesons, 
they have no understanding of the fact that we've opened the seasons this way. But something about what happened in both those cases relates to the story that we're telling you about this specific family. And then it's up for the it's up to the audience to kind of figure out why we did it. But I do think that by the end of the first episode of the show, it's no secret that we told you a, a story about a group of people who clearly thought that the world was going to end on a specific date, and then it didn't. What are the consequences of that belief system failing them? The ins- inspirational text for the writers coming into this final season of the show was this book, uh, When Prophecy Fails, and they did a study on this cult of people who thought that you know the world was going to end in a flood and that aliens were going to come and pick them up, the cult members, right before the flood came. They picked a very specific date um, for when this was going to happen, and so the sociologists were like, whoa, it'll be really interesting to be embedded with these people when that date comes and the world doesn't end and the aliens don't come. We're really curious about what happens when prophecy fails. I thought that was a that was an interesting jumping off point. While I was watching it for the first time, because there wasn't that title card, like it was very possible to me that this was 2015 in Pennsylvania or something, you know? So I, I didn't necessarily assume that this was a real historical thing that I was watching, but instead in the scope of the entire show, it's it's just one more group of people that believe in a certain thing. and. You've referred to this before about like doubling down. And so the woman that we're watching who, and again, like the dialogue free aspect of it combined with the music, which was wonderful, was like, you're watching this woman double and then triple and then quadruple down in her belief. And I think that that relates very clearly to other characters that are in the modern day world of the sudden departure. The inspiration for you know, both the way that we opened season two and season three was the way that the Cone brothers opened a serious man. And they have this kind of crazy prologue about a Dybbuk that's taking place uh, someplace in Eastern Europe in an undefined period of time that seems to be the early 20th century, perhaps. And then there's no explanation. The Cone brothers have never given an interview where they're like, this is why we did it. I, I want to have faith in the storytelling and not completely and totally demystify the kind of more fanciful departures from traditional storytelling. Music, not only in, in the premiere of season three, but throughout the show, is such a big and powerful part. Max Richter is a genius. <laughs> I I like loved, I just listen to the soundtrack for Leftovers all the time when I'm like working and stuff. I'm sorry is... to hear that. You must be a very sad person. <laughs> No, no, it's a good, it's like a happy sad, you know. Can you talk a bit about how um, how you choose the music that Max doesn't compose himself, but instead the songs like Homeward Bound, but also Where Is My Mind, and those those choices along the way. The other musical genius that we have on the show is Liza Richardson, who's our music supervisor. She's a, most widely known for being a DJ at KCRW, which here in LA is kind of the purveyor uh, of like, both cutting edge and and classic music and so her just her knowledge of everything is just astonishing and what she does at the beginning of every season of the show is she'll send a mix of like 120 uh, songs ranging from you know classical music to like just percussion tracks to contemporary stuff all 
from country to hip hop to new age to jazz, just a very wide uh, range of stuff that she just feels is in the leftovers bandwidth. And I just listen to all that stuff when I'm walking my dog or when I'm driving my car around while we're writing. And when I trip over a piece of music that stands out, you know, I make a note of it. And then when I'm in the editing room a month later, I'll say, okay, there's these three songs that Liza gave us that I think could work here in this specific instance. Let's try them out. And then the editor will drop them in and uh, we'll see which one works the best. And then on occasion, in the case of Where Is My Mind, for example, that was not on Liza's mix list. That was a case of us wanting to go really OTN uh, on the nose in terms of Mm -hmm. articulating here's what's going on with Kevin as we introduce the idea that he's seeing Patty. I think that this would be a cool theme to begin to develop for the show. And then there was also this Maxent Siren, beautiful piano cover of Where Is My Mind that we also used and Mr. Robot ended up using before we were able to air, but it was so great. We were like, we're still using it. started becoming you know by the last time we used it was for the scene between Kevin and John Murphy um, so as John Murphy is basically saying like I don't understand what's happening so it's like the idea of like oh this psychosis is actually contagious now John Murphy's caught it the, the music starts to kind of have its own idea as a thematic so we call those needle drops when you're using a piece of pre-existing music versus what uh, Max Richter is doing. Sometimes it's the wackier, the better, and sometimes you're going for something incredibly familiar and using it in a in a subversive way. Uh, she ha- she like sent me a Jim James song called State of the Art at the beginning of season two, and I was like, this is just so cool. We're going to use it at some point. And then when I watched the opening of, of episode six, where this guy is basically traveling all the way from some college to Nora's doorstep to explain to her that he thinks that she's a lens. That song just ended up being the perfect time to use it. That's kind of the process. And then we have amazing editors on the show. This guy, Hank Van Agen, and David Eisenberg, is in particular, is a musical guru. Another guy named Michael Ruscio. When they put together their editor's cuts before I've come in and basically... Uh, infused it with its Liza Richardson influence, they will tempt the show with stuff that they like. And sometimes what they pick is so great, we just end up using that. I loved that Gary Busey resurfaced (laughs) in a way (laughs) that that reference came back. uh, I just love, I love that that balloon exists in the world. You know, like it would have been oh, probably that wasn't a custom made leftovers balloon. Oh, no, 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 it was custom made, but I'm just saying, okay, we didn't do it like as a visual effect. It was like, oh, no, no, we're, we're making that thing, we're inflating it, we're floating it in the air, we're, do- we're doing that with the coat tassels and all. We're not just doubling down on Busey, we're, go- we're going by a factor of 10. For the true fans who stu- have stuck with us since the pilot, I feel they deserve nothing less than a massive floating Busey. <laughs> And if anyone is an organizer of the Macy's Day Parade listening to this podcast, uh, you can have it for free. One of the final things that I wanted to ask you about season three was that I know for season two, you've said that the theme was sort of 
Jill's line, which was, wherever you go, there you are. And this idea that you can't really like escape your situation by just changing geography. So uh, without needing to spoil what's ahead, is there sort of an overall theme that you could describe for us for season three? The theme that we're chasing is, what is the story that you need to believe in order to feel better? And then as a codicil to that, does it matter if it's true? Which is the fundamental basis for all the world religions. And I think is, is sort of why so many people are struggling on this show as it relates to the sudden departure, because it's very hard for them to find a story to believe that makes them feel better that relates to the sudden and abrupt and unexplained disappearance of so many people. But gosh darn it, they're going to try. Well, yeah, which I guess reminds me of the literal book of Kevin that the episode is named after and the idea that Matt is sort of looking for the next iteration of his own religion. There were a bunch of people in the time of Christ who were claiming some sort of messianic provenance or that they were in direct contact with God, but he's the one who's stuck. And so what was it about him that made his story the one that we're still telling two millennia later? And the, if you're a believer, the answer is, well, his was the one that was authentic and everybody else was lying. But I, I kind of feel like, you know, we're telling you one story about one guy who thinks that he's stumbled upon something that's really important. But I think that there's probably several hundreds, if not thousands of Matt Jamesons all over the world as the seven year anniversary uh, approaches. And we're just not telling you their stories because who cares about those guys? We're interested in this one. And that's where you get into the neighborhood of the truth, which is when Kevin challenges what Matt is writing about him and says, you're not allowed to write that. You, you can't say that about me. Matt's retort is, but it's all true. It all happened. And mm-hmm. especially in this day and age where what's true versus what's the better story is a conversation that we're we're having each and every day. I think it's, you know, going to be an an interesting to process how this final season of the leftovers plays out. Absolutely. I mean, I'm I am so excited to see what is in store. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and having you on the show, and we really appreciate you taking the time and can't wait to see what's ahead. I appreciate your time and uh, thanks for having me. Take it easy. And that was Damon Lindelof on our premiere episode here of Showrunners. You can catch Damon's show, The Leftovers, on HBO every Sunday at 9 o'clock. And it's the third and final season, so now is definitely the time to tune in if you haven't been before. I personally cannot wait to see what happens with Kevin Garvey in this final season. I'm sure it is going to be absolutely amazing. So make sure to tune in um, and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you are getting podcasts these days and give us a review because that helps other people find our show because we have lots of exciting interviews with other showrunners coming up. Big thanks to Steve Parkhurst, our producer, and to Brett Carlson, our LA correspondent. Also thanks to Nicholas Carlson, who's my co-host, and you will be hearing his voice soon on this podcast. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep binging. But no one knows for certain so.